Welcome back to Blazing Trails. I'm Michael Revo from Salesforce Studios. And today I'm joined by my podcast partner, Rachel Levin. Welcome, Rachel. Thanks, Michael. It's good to be here as always. And, uh, you know, something that's been on my mind. Do you feel secure, Michael? <laughs> secure? <laughs> I'm not sure what why you're asking me that. What? No, no, I'm not talking about your self-confidence. I'm talking, <laughs> although we can go there, but no, Okay. I'm talking about cybersecurity. Oh, um, okay. Yeah. And the conversation that you had with Salesforce's CTO of security, Tahir El-Gamal, cryptographer and who many consider to be the father of SSL. Well, it was a thrill to chat with Tahir. He's been at the heart of Silicon Valley from the early days, and he built SSL with a team at Netscape that opened up commerce on the web. I mean, wow. think about that. That's kind of a big deal. Yeah. It's a pretty, yeah. Big, pretty big thing. <laughs> and uh, it's still running on billions of machines today. Uh, you know, talk about an incredible impact. So we had the opportunity to talk about the evolution of cybersecurity, mm-hmm. how business leaders should be thinking about it in the future. And it's a unique opportunity to hear from one of the true trailblazers of the industry. Yeah, I know. I learned a lot on that talk. I mean, especially... I love that story that he told that when people first got their debit cards, you know, more than 20 years ago, they used to write their PIN number on the back of the cards. (laughs) (laughs) It was bananas. (laughs) Well, there is a lot of human factor that goes into security and Tahir touches on that in the conversation. So let's just jump right into it to my conversation with Tahir Algamel, legendary cryptographer, Marconi Fellow and Salesforce CTO of security. Tahir, welcome to Blazing Trails. Thanks, Michael. It's really great to be here. Okay, wonderful. Well, to start, I did see when we were doing some reading that we have the same birthday, August 18th. So it's a little early, but happy birthday to us coming up. How about that? A couple of Leos here. And on that note, I would love to hear about some of your growing up in Egypt, about uh, your parents, what it was like there, and uh, where you fell in love with math as a child. Yeah, so, you know, I fell in love with numbers before I fell in love with mm-hmm. math. My father was a high-level official in the Egyptian government for quite a long time. He actually ran the health department for the country for several years. And he was difficult to find, but that's the case for all busy fathers. But I actually fell in love with numbers first. My parents tell me, I don't actually recall that myself, but my parents told me that when I was like four or five years old, I picked up the Cairo phone book mm-hmm. and added all the phone numbers together. <laughs> and if you know anything about Cairo, it's not a small city. There's quite a few phone numbers in that thing. Right. And then apparently I did some statistical analysis of why there were more eights than nines or something crazy like this. Wow. So numbers were kind of very therapeutic for me. And, you know, when I grew up, I kind of analyzed it as numbers never change their mind, actually. It's a beautiful thing. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. People, on the other hand, you know, change their mind all the time, every second uh, sometimes. And, you know, when I went through school and college and so on, it was obvious that math was my favorite subject. When people asked me what was your favorite subject at school, it was actually algebra. Mm-hmm. And there are very few people that have that answer to that question. <laughs> right. But algebra, I found algebra to be wonderful. And just to get back to that topic, 
And that led you to Silicon Valley and to Stanford in the early 80s, in the early days of computing. And I would love to hear about some of that history at your time getting your PhD at Stanford and what it was like in the Valley in those days. Oh, it was a wonderful thing. I mean, I came in 79 and I came to get a PhD and I, you know, I wasn't exactly sure what topic it was going to be. And I sort of, and I kind of found, you know, Martin Hellman, who's the person who was invented public key cryptography out of all subjects. And we chatted and I kind of liked the subject. But I was studying my favorite topic, which is actually in mathematics called number theory. Number mm -hmm. theory is a very large part of mathematics. And I took a whole bunch of classes. And it was just fulfilled my dream because that's what I grew up loving. And it turns out I still love it until today. So, you know, with the help from Martin Hellman, I was able to study cryptography and, and write a thesis that became famous and graduate and, you know, build a career in cybersecurity. But the Silicon Valley was very different 40 years ago. It was full of fruit orchards. <laughs> you don't see fruit orchards anymore. There were like Stanford and Hewlett Packard, the National Semiconductor, and that was it. Apple was barely starting and... It, it was very different. The, the whole Silicon Valley was basically centered around Stanford, which is a, a good thing for me at the time. So, you know, I got to know people. I got to meet people at Stanford, very, very smart groups. I got to learn about the country. I came as an adult, right? I was in my mid-20s when I came in. Mm -hmm. And it was like popping in a movie, you know, when, when I what I knew about the U.S. at the time was basically from the movies because people watch U.S. movies all over the world. So that was an interesting thing. And, I, you know, I learned how to speak English. I, I was taught written English in Egypt, but I learned how to speak English sort of by talking to people and, you know, became an integral part of the Valley. I mean, I've been in the Valley longer than most people, as it turns out now, because most people have not been here for 40-some years. I basically... Technologically grew up with it. And could you feel at the time that the valley was on the precipice of something big happening? Or was that later when that feeling came? You know, I remember a conversation I had with my boss at Hewlett Packard. So my first job right out of school when I finished my PhD was at mm -hmm. Hewlett Packard Labs in Palo Alto here, right across the street from Stanford. So it was kind of the same neighborhood. And I had a conversation with my boss at, at that point, so that's 40 years back. And I told him, hey, look, I think the internet is gonna take over the world. And we were connected. The internet existed, by the way, at the time. There was no web or HTTP or any other stuff that we take for granted these days. But we were connected, we sent emails, and, and you know, we understood what connectivity meant. And he reminded me after the IPO of Netscape in, in the mid-90s, he actually called me and said, you know, <laughs> you were right 15 years ago or whenever it was. I remember that. He said he remembered that conversation, which is kind of hilarious, actually. Well, it took a little while to get there, and you were right at the center of it, working at Netscape in the early days of uh, the dot-com era. And that's where you developed... SSL, and you have this wonderful moniker of the father of SSL. So tell us about that a little bit, those days at Netscape and developing that. 
I do not actually know who invented that father of SSL thing. It just sits yeah. on the web for some reason. Uh, I recall that. But, you know, you're saying it took a while for us to get here. Actually, if you look at the, the, the base of change in the society, and I mean the global society, it's the fastest change ever. Mm-hmm. In 25 years, we live in a completely mm-hmm. different world from just 25 years ago. We take all of these connectivity things for granted. SSL played the central role in securing things, which it's sort of you know fun to see. You work on things because you feel good at the time, and you do. You, you're never going to be able to predict that there's going to be billions of copies of something that you worked on being used in every single machine wow. in the world, which is kind of yeah. funny. It is true today, and this father thing, although he was not. I, I did not call my th- my myself father of SSL. I have two yeah. kids that my wife and I love. Not including SSL. Um, <laughs> not including SSL. Uh, but I think that the reason that it was named that because I actually sort of nurtured SSL until right. it became a standard. I didn't just write something or you know write a paper or a patent. Although I, we did write the patent at the time at Netscape and. You know, we had a whole team that built the real detailed protocol mm-hmm. spec and took it to the world. And, you know, but I actually took it to the IETF and made sure it became an industry standard. And we convinced Microsoft that it was the right thing to do to agree on a single protocol mm-hmm. rather than build multiple ones. And it, it just became what it mm-hmm. is today. You know, I'm curious if that process is similar now of developing a protocols. At the time, it seemed like there was such a spirit of everybody was in trying to grow the internet. Everybody had a view into what the potential was, and and maybe there was more collaboration. Would it be the same process to develop a new protocol now as it was back then? Actually, it's it feels like not exactly what you're saying, because even back then, there were other protocols mm-hmm. that people were working on that... Even the ITF itself was trying to standardize. But people were still building and shipping things with their own proprietary Mm -hmm. stuff. Uh, If you look at the payments industry, for example, which obviously we did e-commerce in the early Netscape days. That was Mm -hmm. sort of the number one goal. That was the target. The payment industry has so many protocols. It's hilarious. The only thing that, that... even the payment industry agreed on is to use SSL for mm-hmm. internet payments. It's the only one thing that the entire payment mm-hmm. industry ever agreed on, which, which you know, it was because it was available, it was there, it was in all browsers and all servers, and because it was the one standard everybody implemented it, and it was interoperable and it was easy to use. But there has always been the desire to build proprietary right. things for control. And I don't think that was different yeah. back then from now, actually. I think there's, there's, there has been, even back then, a desire to build a proprietary thing because you, you think you're going to control mm-hmm. an, an ecosystem. But clearly, controlling billions and billions of machines talking to each other with security built in would not be done by any one entity. There's just no way. It doesn't matter how big the entity yeah, I mean, is. So I think I think now we recognize the value of, of the collaborative effort. And you know, people still remember. 
yeah, the open standards really opened up that whole opportunity. And since then, you've been involved with securing global networks at scale for many years now, and you're leading that effort uh, along with Jim Alcove here at Salesforce. What do you see the challenges ahead in the in the security space? So, so you know, there are some dirty secrets in this. The answer to this. In the early days, we looked at how do we use this internet? It's an open network. How do you use it to do e-commerce? And e-commerce to us was conduct a transaction over this open network. You know, what does that mean? Because an open network means that anybody can see everything or people can even modify things Mm -hmm. if they can't see them. So we said, you know, we have to hide these transactions from the open network. That's where the SSL idea came from. It was a company effort. Mm -hmm. Unfortunately, what happened after this, you know, SSL became a standard and successful, and the world believed that we solved security. Security is done, let's build e-commerce, and they just moved on. And we did not, at the time, uh, you know, analyze threats that might be coming afterwards very well. So we analyzed a particular number of threats that have to do with an open network, and, you know, we'll let the, the business grow. And then a few years later, you discover that, you know, people are attacking the corporate network. So you can get people's transactions mm-hmm. sitting in databases. That's nothing mm-hmm. to do with the open network. They did not actually attack SSL itself. Right. They attacked something else. And then they got innovative. I do not know exactly who came up with the ransomware mm-hmm. idea. It's mm-hmm. pretty innovative. You know, you go, you, you just get a hold of some machine or some group of machines and you, you know, you tell the owner, you know, pay me a dollar and I'll give Mm -hmm. it back to you sort of thing. So the attacks, the threats grew out of proportion faster than the controls could be done. Yeah. I just saw a headline today. The G7 meeting is today and that, you know, it used to be nuclear security that was the topic of conversation and now it's cybersecurity and i think we're seeing all these ransomware attacks in fact i tried to book a ferry uh, for an upcoming trip and i i couldn't book it online because the ferry company had been attacked by a ransomware attack now every organization is a digital organization and has a digital front door and and and, and how should senior leaders be thinking about these security issues and and, and communicating uh, with their teams about that? So, you know, there is the good, there is the bad, and there is the ugly. The good is everybody's realizing the nature of the threats. Now they're becoming infrastructure. You, you can't go to the ferry, right? This is not a, a, a transaction that somebody stole. This is this is an infrastructure right. issue. Or, you know, you cannot get gas in your mm-hmm. car when you're driving in the mm-hmm. East Coast. The bad is companies and, you know, agencies and entities are coming up to speed on how do I protect myself as a business or as an agency. So each entity is building knowledge about how do, you, how do I protect mm-hmm. myself. The ugly is we forget that it's actually a global issue. This is not a company issue. It's a global issue, and we will not be able to solve this until we cooperate. There has to be a level of collaboration between entities globally 
for us to make this new ecosystem risk level sort of correspond to the risk level of the normal human being life that we're used to for the last you know million years or whenever mm-hmm. human mm-hmm. race started. The problem with the high connectivity is that it is making the risk much higher percentage-wise and a lot closer. You know, in the old days, to attack someone, you had to cross borders and you know bring people. There was a lot of physical activity. Right now, you can you can conduct these things just by sitting at home. So it's a very different world. I'm glad that G7 are talking about it. I hope they work together. I hope we work together with with all of them and with others because the level of connectivity is just higher than what we can protect globally until we actually know how to work with each other correctly. And it's not going to get fixed now by somebody doing one or two things. It's going to take a number of years, maybe decades, to actually get done correctly, I think. And when you think about the level of connectivity and then you start to bring in what's happening with IoT, what's happening with peer-to-peer and 5G, and the connectivity is exploding. It has been for years and it continues to with so many connected devices. How do you think about an overall sort of security protocol as this grows so much? How should companies be thinking about that? Yeah, so as a community of human beings living in different places, we have not come to a realization yet that anything we built and connect into this connected world is both value but also produces risk. Right. You know, companies that build IoT devices do not consider what they are building to be part of the risk, although everything that is connected is part of the risk. You hear of attack using IP cameras to attack things. The camera didn't do anything but it doesn't have any protection. Mm -hmm. So it actually launches the attack from the camera because if if the attacker can find their way through different connected nodes on this network, the level of attacks is much bigger than anything we're used to. So I think we need to sort of come to the realization and the conclusion that any and everything we build needs to understand Mm -hmm. that it's connected and it needs to take into consideration you know, what it, it is protecting and what it can get access to that can hurt us. Yeah, I mean, I think about that in my own life now when I realize with all these connected devices, wait, you're bringing in another access point into your house. How do you think about that when you're <laughs> putting things in your house? What's your thought? It's a good point. And there is the immediate and there is not so immediate thinking. So the immediate is if you connect your door for example, which a lot of people now do, to to the network. Somebody can open your door sitting in their house. That doesn't sound like fun. And and so this is is even the immediate thinking. The not-so-immediate thinking is somebody can use your fridge Mm -hmm. and everybody else's fridge to attack some other thing. Nobody's thinking of this. And the fridge companies clearly don't think of that. But they're all nodes on the same network. They're all connected to each other. There's no two networks. Mm -hmm. It's all one network. And if any group of nodes are available for an attacker to get a hold of, you know, you're going to see amazing things. So we are not protecting even from the first immediate things. As in, can someone, in fact, open your door over the Internet Mm -hmm. sitting at their house? And, you know, it it takes a lot of thinking Mm -hmm. to make that correct. 
but certainly people are not thinking of the, of the bigger story. And now Salesforce says, you know, security is and trust is a number one value here at Salesforce and, and securing our customers' data is, is paramount to what we do. But we're, we're not in the consumer security business. How does Salesforce connect to some of these larger global issues that you're talking about? So Salesforce has access to a lot of customer data. You're absolutely correct. And if you look at everything that gets done in Salesforce, it's all centered around protecting customer data. It's actually one of the number one goals, just protecting customer data. And the growth of Salesforce is like exactly one-to-one corresponding to growth of customer data. And when that happens, it's not just the growth of the data, it's it's the nature of the data. There is more data, but there's also more sensitive data. There is more important data. So the focus at Salesforce on security is huge because it's, it's sort of a core part of the business. You're right. Trust is our number one value. And to me, as a security professional, trust means protecting customer data. That's what I tell the CISOs that I talk to every single day. I talk to customer CISOs all the time. Mm-hmm. And that's what I tell them. that. For a security professional to tell another security professional what trust means mm-hmm. is that we will protect your data, right. and we will put that at, at the highest, you know, at the highest level of protection because we mm-hmm. have to. So we built a really good security program. The company is investing a lot in security, I mean, we have some of the best people in security, mm-hmm. right, in the company. But as a company, we're always looking into how do we give back? This is, mm-hmm. this is part of Salesforce. This is how the company was built. Now, giving back does not mean hurting Salesforce security because that doesn't, that doesn't actually get anywhere. So we partner with the World Economic Forum, for example, and give away our security training to them. If you go to the World mm-hmm. Economic Forum site, you'll find security training material mm-hmm. that we just donated. We give away for free. It's available to every single person in the world. And the notion is the more security aware people in the world, the better the whole cybersecurity situation is going to be. It's going to take a worldwide activity, which obviously Salesforce is always part of, but we need a lot of collaborations. We need a lot of governments to to kind of, even governments that don't exactly see eye to eye, we need these people to talk to each mm-hmm. other. So, you know, as a, as, a, as a corporation, we're always ready and willing to, to give back and contribute and participate. But clearly building a worldwide resilient network is something that needs a lot of people to participate. Mm-hmm. Well, I've taken the security training <laughs> as a Salesforce employee, and I can tell you that it taught me a lot of really simple things that I hadn't really thought of before that are are just very basic rules. And in some ways, it's, you know, ha- how to think about security. It's beyond passwords and two-factor authentication and just some very simple things. You know, how are maybe we thinking about this the wrong way or how what, what are some of the, the really simple pieces of advice that come out of that training uh, that people should know? It's being aware. Mm-hmm. You know, physically, if, if somebody were to drop you in the middle of a city, your eyes are going to automatically look around and see, is this is a suspicious place that, you know, there's, there's weird things happening or this is a safe place for me to walk around. 
And as a human being, you're going to actually behave differently depending on how you sense the place that you physically are at. It's hard to do that in a network because you actually don't see exactly where you are. So awareness is very important. Knowing which sites somebody is, is clicking on, it's sometimes not easy to detect if a particular location in, in the internet is actually safe or not. So we need to collectively develop the awareness of this. And part of that is what we teach in these classes that you said you've done. Mm -hmm. Just don't click on something you don't know. Right. It's just right. the simplest things. People still share their path. And, and it's things we do. You know, remember when, when ATM cards, when, when debit cards first showed up, and I'm, I'm, you know, 20-some years ago. Yeah. People used to write the pin on the back of the card. <laughs> right. And then the banks were on our case. People, people, the whole point of a pin is that you don't write on the same card because you want the access to be correct. We have to change the way we deal with technology to be able to arrive to a safe right. place. And when you think about that for a whole organization, what should be top of mind for CIOs and CTOs right now? What are you hearing in the conversations that you're having with leaders of enterprise companies? What's top of mind for security right now? The threats that are not exactly known mm -hmm. are unexpected. Although, you know, technology professionals at large always understood the nature of what a, a ransomware attack could or could not be. For example, I mean, we did not anticipate all of this, but we understand technically what goes in. The fact that we have to protect our businesses, our organizations, our agencies, from attacks that are yet to come is actually the number one issue because we do not know what the attackers that are going to come up with. There's a lot of machines and computers and processes and cloud services and everything connected to everything. And the adversaries are very smart at finding weaknesses, finding a weakness, you know, in, in, in one computer in the sea of computers can actually yield to an issue that could eventually yield to a breach that is harmful. So the attacker has the edge, right? The attacker needs to find an entry point mm -hmm. and then follow it, while people who are protecting needs to protect mm -hmm. the entire thing. So it's actually not a fair game as far as that goes. The attackers work mm -hmm. with each other. They're actually extremely connected. They build on these tools. They can tell you and continue enhancing the tools. And the protection, you know, people who are protecting their own companies collaborate, but to a much less degree. So when, you, when you're thinking top of mind, the top of mind is, can somebody utilize some weakness someplace and, and launch an attack that I'm not aware of? And how many layers of defense and protection and detection do I need to build to, you know, optimistically prevent an attack, but at minimum detect it early enough so it doesn't cause real harm? You know, we all know in this industry there is this new thing in, in, in cybersecurity that we all call mm -hmm. zero trust. And what it means is you have to assume that some bad person, some adversary found their way through. And, and, and they are actually in the middle of a network that you care about. And you want to minimize the impact mm -hmm. of that. 
to hear this conversation is going great. It's super interesting. And, you know, the question I have when I think about that, where, you know, you've got a group of attackers who have the advantage and you're constantly on the defensive. It's almost like being a defensive back against a great quarterback <laughs> offensive team. It just, I mean, what's that feel like? I mean, you've been in this role for, you know, your, your whole career really in this defensive position. What does that feel like to be there all the time? I mean, uh, on one hand, it's kind of really fun because you're solving difficult problems, which is what, you know, in the technical world we strive for. We all want to find solutions mm -hmm. to difficult problems. You know, every once in a while, you kind of wish that people will work together a little bit more to make, this, mm -hmm. to make the situation better. Every once in a while, you wish that the infrastructure was built in a somewhat different way that is easier to protect. But, you know, at the end of the day, it's, you know, we play the cat and mouse game. Mm -hmm. We're good at it. And, you know, you protect against these massive amount of attacks by building layers and layers of protection. It's well, I know this comes out of your love of cryptography and, and that, you know, that's your field of study. You know, I don't know a whole lot about it. I would love to hear some of the fun stuff that you've worked on or just tell me a little bit more about it as a field and, and beyond security, how are you still involved with it right now? People did ask me, why did you get in cryptography? And my answer to that question is cryptography is the most beautiful use mm -hmm. of mathematics I've ever seen. It's just absolutely gorgeous mathematics. It's, you know, it changes with time. It's not a fixed thing. So it forces you to continue mm -hmm. to think and change. And you want to apply it in different ways so that you can protect important things. But it teaches you how to think differently. And the simplest way as an example of thinking differently is, you know, it's, it's, it's what I tell people. So it's, you know, people come to you and describe their product. And I, I listen to startups and people mm -hmm. studying things all day long. And they're describing, you know, how beautiful the thing is. And the vast majority of people will listen and contribute and love the conversation. But a cryptographer will mm -hmm. think how this could fail, which is kind of the opposite thinking. Because over the years, you train your brain to think differently, which is kind of, I think it's a needed skill. And I think security people will continue to, to be needed and, and, you know, the numbers will continue to grow. And, you know, everybody tells me we need more security enabled people. We don't have enough. The world does not have mm -hmm. enough. That is correct. Mm -hmm. And um, but cryptography as, as an example of a use of mathematics is, it just, you know, I, I don't not know. I was extremely lucky maybe or whatever, but, but it's really awesome to think through. Well, that love of uh, cryptography and all the work you've done over the years has led to you recently winning the Marconi Prize, uh, which dates all the way back to 1975 and has featured some of the most important people in the industry have, have, have gotten the award, Tim Berners-Lee and... Larry Page and Sergey Brin and your uh, PhD advisor, Martin Hellman, as well. Tell me a little bit about the award. It's magnificent to, to, to be recognized, obviously, by the industry that, you know, you, you were part of for some four years. It's a wonderful feeling. You know, the Marconi Society itself was started by the granddaughter of Marconi, who's the person that invented the radio way back when. Mm -hmm. So it was actually mm -hmm. in recognition of her grandfather. 
And that group is just unbelievable. Vint Cerf is the current chairman of, of the Marconi Society. Vint is the inventor of TCPIP, mm-hmm. the first internet protocol that is still around until now. The individuals who invented the cell phone. I mean, things that we take for granted are part of these Marconi fellows. So, so being invited to be part of that group is, is a wonderful feeling. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I I learn a new thing every day by listening to that, these conversations because obviously people are specialized in their fields. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, it's been such an incredible, you know, uh, time of innovation. Uh, that you've contributed to and learned so much, and it's changed the world. There's no doubt about that. So this has just been a wonderful opportunity to catch up and learn about your career and about security at Salesforce. So thank you so much for joining today. It was a great pleasure. Thanks, Michael. It's been great to be here, and I appreciate the opportunity. That was Tahir Elgamal, legendary cryptographer, Marconi Fellow, and Salesforce CTO of Security. For more, we've got some great resources on Trailhead, our free learning platform to help companies and individuals of all levels develop security knowledge. Go to trailhead.salesforce.com slash cybersecurity. Again, that's trailhead.salesforce.com slash cybersecurity. And if you like this episode, be sure to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Michael Revo from Salesforce Studios. Thanks for listening today.